Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for giving us this time together. And we've been blessed so far, Lord, through this worship. We pray again that you've been blessed and praised. And your name has been just uh, seen to be as, as sweet as it actually is uh, through our singing and our scripture reading. And the gospel has already been set forth. And um, we're grateful, God, because all this leads to uh, coming to your text together and hearing the word preached and uh, seeking to be faithful preachers and listeners and um, just uh, wanting to have our, our souls um, transformed, God, into the image of Christ, uh, who we are remembering uh, in particular once again today uh, as we approach his table, his precious table. So thank you, God, for this time, and uh, we ask you to, to be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew there, to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, it's good for all of us to have our Bibles open and looking at the text together. And as you're making your way there, I just want to say that I'm so thankful to God that even though the the Bible was written thousands of years ago, it is always relevant. It's never useless or boring or outdated, but it's always pertinent to our lives. It is eternal truth because it comes from an eternal God who knows all things, past, present, and future. And that's on a, a universal, just cosmic scale, and also on a very personal, intimate scale with each of us. The Bible claims to have in it everything pertaining to life and godliness. That is, help in our practical and spiritual lives. And so I don't want to make a long introduction here because we've got a lot to do, and also we're going to observe communion at the end. But um, I was thankful for today's text because uh, I found in, in recent um, days and, and maybe even weeks uh, just a, a certain uh, lack in my, my prayer life. Uh, just being honest here, uh, just there, there's been just frequency and, and just um, just those sweet times of prayer that, that uh, Ruth was just playing about and the hymn was expressing uh, that sometimes have, has seemed to be lacking um, in my my own life the past while. And so um, the, today's text and Jesus is teaching here. It's not going to cover everything on prayer, even though we wish we could. We're just going to cover uh, as, as faithfully as we can what um, he says here. But uh, if we have a big idea or some uh, a theme for these few verses that we're going to cover today, it would be this. Jesus wants us to truly trust in God, coming clean to him as we pray for our many needs in life. Okay? So let me say that again. Jesus wants his people and his disciples. He wants us, if that's who we are, to truly trust in God. And he wants us to be coming clean to him. Okay, this is the forgiveness part, right? Coming clean to him as we pray for our many needs in life. And I left that off of the, the bulletin, the insert. I think I left it off the screen info as well. Right, Joe? I just wanted to say it. And our sermon text is Mark 11, verses 22 to 26. It's kind of part two of, of last week, which started all the way back in, in verse uh, 11. But um, our, our verses today kind of finish off this uh, sequence here. And so 
one more time, if you can stand with me, I would invite you to stand as we honor God's word. Our text is verses 22 to 26, but I'm actually going to start reading in verse 20. Okay, Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. This is the word of God. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Please be seated. So I want to submit to you along with that big idea that I, I just gave you three essential elements of effective prayer. Okay, three essential elements of effective prayer. And by the way, these are not the only elements of effective prayer, but these are three that I believe comes forth from the text that we're covering today, verses 22 to 26. Okay? So the first one is, is this. True belief in the one true God. In your bulletin, there's a little outline there and a little uh, insert. Uh, not an insert, but within the bulletin, if you're taking notes, the blank there is belief. True belief in the one true God. That's the first essential element of effective prayer. And remember, Jesus' reply, okay, he, it says there, Jesus answered them, right? His reply is an answer to Peter's comment in verse 21 that I just read. Right after he saw the fig tree that the Lord cursed, which we heard last Sunday was a symbolic teaching lesson. It was a live action parable, right? Jesus was teaching and showing God's judgment on outwardly religious Israel, Judaism, leaders, spiritual leaders and people, okay, which was displayed most grossly okay, by the commercial business practices in the temple. And so he cleanses the temple for the second time in his ministry, first and last, right? They had all the rituals and ceremonies and displays of worship, but it was nothing but leaves, okay, outward show. There was no spiritual fruit. Okay, that was a quick synopsis of part one last week. Okay, they should have been full of spiritual fruit, but you know what? There was no real faith. There was no true belief in the one true God. And so, of course, all of their works, all of their outward shows, they, they produced nothing. It was fruitless. Matthew 21:20, which is the parallel passage to Mark 11 here, he adds that the disciples were amazed and asked Jesus, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And so Jesus answers, same way here, have faith in God. Have faith in God. The, the Lord didn't give a, a verbal explanation to the 12 here about God's judgment on Israel. Did you notice that? 
Okay, we, we extracted that from what was happening with the temple and just all those other verses in the Old Testament last week, right, that talked about fig trees and about judgment and Israel and the nation and the leaders and everything. So rather than giving a verbal explanation there, he teaches them through this enacted parable and he makes a statement. Okay, it's a command, in fact. And this undergirds the rest of what he will say in our text today. Okay, so I'm not going to brush by it. We shouldn't brush by it. It's a foundational truth. It's the essential element of effective prayer that we cannot miss. Okay? So at Peter's surprise and the, the disciples' amazement, this is the 12, right? The curse Jesus pronounced on the tree, it happened like right away on the spot. Okay? Next day they saw it. The Lord gives a gentle reproof and reminder, have faith in God. That is, true faith in the one true God. And this is paramount to any prayers being answered. To put it another way, one must believe in the right God in, in order for any prayers to be answered. Have faith in God. Okay, the first essential element of effective prayer, dear ones, the object of our belief and faith and prayers must be the right object. And I think this is somewhat evident to most of us here, or to some of us here, but listen, Many unbelievers, okay, whether they profess to believe in Jesus Christ or not, at least a lot of unbelievers I know, they spend a lot of time praying. Some of them. Praying or meditating or doing spiritual exercises. Muslims are are required to pray five times every day. It's one of the pillars of, of their faith. But the question is, who are they praying to? They pray to Allah, who is not the same God as, as, as the Christian Bible. Allah is not Yahweh, who is the only real, true God. I am who I am. Other unbelievers, whether they're Hindus or Buddhists or New Age spiritualists, I know some who pray and meditate as much as, if not more, than I do. But the key essential issue, once again, is who are they praying to? Do they know the one true God? Do they have a right relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are they talking to? Jesus says here again, have faith in God. And he told the twelve then, and he's telling us now, it needs to start there. The scribes and Pharisees and their fellow Jewish People in the crowds who will turn on Jesus, they had everything. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the scriptures, they had the Messiah King who came for them. They had everything except the one true God. The Jews who Jesus spoke to, just like the Jews today, or just like Muslims who follow Allah or Hindus or Buddhists or Mormons or JWs or whoever else following false gods, They all believed and hoped that they would do a good enough job of keeping their own religion's rules in order to make it to heaven. But none of them are assured that they're going to make it. So, Scripture is clear. God's standard is perfection. And the Bible says that Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection met that standard. Jesus' message to the Jews 
And his message now is this. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And by the way, that doesn't mean stop sinning and and just believe that God exists. And that's not what that means. It means turn from your sins, stop trying to please God by your own works, and believe that Jesus has accomplished all the work for your salvation. If I'm going to summarize it super briefly there. And the promise is to all who trust in Jesus as Lord is that you become God's children. So you no longer relate to him as your judge, but now as your Abba, Father. Dear unbelieving friends who are here this morning or who are listening on the live stream or those sitting on the fence today, maybe you're not sure, I invite you to claim that precious promise that God gives. Put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he says all who repent and believe, all who call on the name of the Lord, all who confess Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, they will be saved. They will receive the precious, priceless gift of eternal life, the pearl of great price. So back to the point here. Hey, without true belief in the one true God, I must say this. Hey, your prayers are not only not effective, but your prayers are, are useless. After all, just think about this. What are prayers to someone or something that doesn't exist? It's called wishful thinking at best or false worship at worst. It's the most honest and accurate. Did you know that God is not obligated to answer any prayers of unbelievers? Actually, according to Scripture, He doesn't pay any mind to the prayer of the unrighteous, people who don't believe in him in the first place. Listen to to these verses. Isaiah 59, verse 2. And and this is uh, directly to Israel, but it applies to all sinful people who have rejected the one true God, Yahweh. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a, a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. John 9, verse 31. Okay, if you don't like the Old Testament, here's Jesus' words. Okay, John 9, verse 31. He says, we know that God does not hear sinners. Okay, God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, God hears him. Back to the Old Testament, Proverbs 28, verse 9. Those of you who like nuggets of wisdom. Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so imagine, dear friends, you're, you're talking to someone and, and that someone considers it to be a, an offense to him, an abomination, an awful offense. Hey, lastly, 1 Peter 3, verse 12, which is New Testament, but it's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jesus says, have faith in God. 
So I think we should at least briefly define faith. We are, after all, Faith Bible Church, and we better know what faith is. And basically, it's trust, it's belief. If you're going to explain this to a, a youngin, right, uh, like Noah back there, a young person, trust, belief, confidence, expanding that a little bit, it's confession and acknowledgement that someone or something is true and real. Hebrews 11, verse 1, we know the verse, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That simply means that we are sure of what we hope for, okay? which is salvation, our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the conviction of things not seen, we are convinced of what we do not see. Okay? We don't see Jesus physically, visibly, yet we're convicted of the truth of who he is and what he did on our behalf. I like how William Hendrickson put it. He says, faith is the soul's window through which God's love comes pouring in. I like that. He also says, the open hand whereby man receives God's gift of himself. And lastly, and this is very good for our our text today, he says, it's the trunk of salvation's tree whose root is grace and whose fruit is good works. So faith is the trunk of salvation's tree whose root is grace and whose fruit is good works. That's really good. Okay, faith is basically taking God at his word, believing his word, believing his gospel as revealed in scripture. Speaking of this, the, the Bible describes faith as leaning on the everlasting arms of God. In Deuteronomy 33:27, that's where that, that good old hymn came from, right? Leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms of God. It also speaks of faith as committing one's way to the Lord, trusting in him, knowing that he will do whatever is best. In Psalm 37, verse 5. It also describes faith as receiving the kingdom of God as a child or like a child. Okay, so we went over that in Mark 10 uh, a while back, Mark 10, verse 15. So it's an inner confession of dependence on God in Christ. It demonstrates itself in this leaning into, leaning onto. It's like when you sit on a chair or climb up a ladder. You have faith that the chair will hold you up. You have faith that the, the rungs of the ladder will carry your weight. Jesus says again, have faith in God. Notice that Jesus is not making a suggestion to the disciples. He's, he's giving a command. It's an imperative. Believe in God. Repent and believe. And again, the command comes with an object to believe in, and that's God alone. Hey, listen, folks. Don't have faith in your faith. Hey, don't have faith in your faith. There's so much talk, uh, that kind of talk nowadays, Right? Having faith in in my faith. My faith is what saved me. My faith is what what got me through. This is the power of positive thinking kind of teaching. That's not the teaching of Jesus. Not what he means when he says have faith in God. You're not going to get anywhere spiritually if your faith is not in the one true God. You might make some progress in some areas of your life by trying different things 
or thinking a, a certain different way or making some changes, lifestyle changes. But spiritually, which is the most important thing, you'll be spinning in your wheels, going nowhere fast. And ultimately, you'll be on the broad road to destruction that the esteemed brothers Malcolm and Angus Young from the band ACDC sang about. Highway to hell. That's what you'll be heading towards. Jesus says, have faith in God. Faith in God, the God of Scripture, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only Him. Trust in Him. The only one who is worthy of that trust. So, Jesus says that God is faithful when the religious system and establishment and institutions fail. He says, have faith in God. Again, a gentle rebuke to the disciples who lack of faith in, his, in the power of his word made them amazed at what happened to the fig tree. That tree showed them vividly God's power. And so he says, keep believing. Okay, so if you're a Christian today, keep believing in God. Keep trusting in him. And the disciples needed to hear that as their Lord will soon be crucified. Okay, so having faith, keeping faith, true faith in the one true God, don't waver. That's the starting point for any prayers to be effective. What else is essential for effective prayer? Well, the second thing is this, verse 23 and 24. A trusting, believing heart. A trusting, believing heart. And uh, before we get into the point here, I'm going to quote commentator James Edwards on how prayer and faith are connected. A prayer and faith are connected. Listen, quote, Prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. Both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. And both wait and trust upon his promise to save, end quote. And I'll say both wait and trust on his promise to do all sorts of other humanly speaking Seemingly impossible things. Okay, so verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Truly I say to you, that now familiar phrase of Jesus, which is important every time, verily, surely I say to you, so listen up, this emphatic intro. After he says that comes probably the, the most frequent or favorite proof text for the prosperity gospel and word of faith teachers. Hey, this whole theology of name it and claim it teaching, which is false, by the way. To quote R.C. Sproul, he says, we have to be very careful with these verses. Okay, a whole theology based almost exclusively on this text has permeated the Christian world in our day. The word of faith movement, which espouses the idea of name it and claim it, tells us that all we have to do to receive something we want is to claim it as ours in Jesus' name, and it will be ours. Okay, that's what they teach. This movement is, in some ways, the Christian parallel to the New Age movement in the secular world. The New Age movement teaches that by visualizing what we want to happen, we can actually change the world around us. The force that is at the bottom of the New Age thinking is really just magic. 
End quote. And we need to stop and ask, is this what Jesus was teaching? Because maybe, you know, especially if you read the, the Matthew passage, it, it sounds like it, it could be. But does he literally mean that if we truly believe with, with such great and strong and powerful faith in God, not doubting but completely trusting, if we really believe hard enough, we could tell Mount Whitney, okay, which is the, the highest peak in California, right? And this is where uh, Dave and Linda are right now, so we won't do that. But tell Mount Whitney to, to get itself into the, the Pacific Ocean. And if we believe really hard enough and strongly enough, not doubting, believe in our heart, that it's, that's going to happen? That request is going to be granted? Is that what he means to say here? Listen, some, some would, would, might argue so. Or, or they, would, they would say, well, it's hard to understand what, what he's really saying. Okay, uh, Francis Chan, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something like, you just read the Bible when you're a new believer and, and take Jesus' words for, for what it is, and, and you're just trusting everything he says, and I, I want to have that kind of faith. Right? I want to be that kind of Christian, that kind of disciple who believes so strongly. And you could tell a mountain to move, and it will. That's the kind of faith that Jesus talks about. But, but then you go to seminary, and they, they teach you that that's not what it really means. But, but there it is. Okay, someone as prominent as, as him says stuff like that. I mean, really, is, is Jesus' point here to tell the disciples, yeah, men, about, about that fig tree, uh, you can do a lot more damage than that, guys. Hey, just, it's just a little tree. That's peanuts. You've got to think bigger. You've got to believe. I, I want you to have such a faith that you can cast the, the Mount Olivet into the, the Dead Sea. Yeah, obviously, from the rest, and maybe not so obviously, from the rest of Jesus' teachings, from the rest of Scripture, we understand that it's not what he's teaching here. A brief case in point for you. Is there anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus himself performs a miracle of such colossal magnitude, physically speaking? And it's not like he couldn't, but, but did he? The answer is no. And in fact, it was that kind of outwardly spectacular miracle that the unbelieving Jewish leaders were asking for. Jews seek for signs, right? But, but Jesus refused to do. Matthew 12, 38. It says there, Matthew 12, 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign, attesting miracles, right? We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for signs, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Matthew 12, 38. He declined any superficial displays of power. And his disciples weren't confused about this. They weren't feeling bad for not being able to tell a mountain to move and it doesn't budge. That wasn't the point. Jesus did not uproot mountains for show, nor did he ever instruct the disciples to do stuff like that, nor does he or the Bible anywhere instruct us to do so today. So so then what what is Jesus actually teaching? That's a good question. Well, he's using hyperbolic, figurative language, a a picturesque metaphor here, as it's likely the Mount of Olives, 
that's right up ahead in view of him and the twelve as he says this. The disciples could envision the mountain being lifted and cast into the sea at the word of a a faith-filled believer. That's the picture Jesus paints for them to see. And to quote D. Edmund Hebert here, he says, removing a mountain is a bigger task than blighting a fig tree. But the connection here is that the fig tree withered with Jesus' words because of the power of God. He is explaining now how the disciples can tap into that same power. And he does this by picturing an even more incredible demonstration of power of moving a mountain. Of course, he didn't mean that that they were to go about moving mountains, but they were to lay hold of faith in God, which is a a mountain-moving type of faith, end quote. He he explains that the, the doubt... Doubt is the the opposite, the antithesis of belief. And it's the enemy that prevents one from tapping into the power of God in prayer. That's actually where the end quote is. So the Lord is is giving a picture of something that is utterly impossible with men, yet can be accomplished through faith in the power of God. He's instructing the twelve to have faith, to continue to believe in God, even for what seems impossible. And that's the picture, right? But things that are according to his will and purposes. And aren't they going to need this very soon, folks? I mean, they've already needed it. We need it. Aren't they going to need it in, in a particular way? I mean, like, like we, we understand at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to be crucified at the end of the week. And aren't they going to need it after he's resurrected and ascended and goes into heaven? Like, aren't they going to need it after that? with all the enemies and the hostility and the persecution and unbelief and evil and dark around them, they'll need to keep trusting his word, believing in God, asking all things with abiding faith and belief that he will grant them. And Jesus says, when you ask like that, they will be granted. Hey, just uh, bear with me for a moment here. Like, what, what sorts of things will the twelve be needing to ask God? And what sorts of things for believing that he will grant their requests? And just a hint for you, it's not to be able to physically move mountains. Okay? One, strength for themselves to keep believing, even though Jesus is not there anymore, even though Jesus is about to be crucified, even though they're having those mock trials and, and um, Jesus is getting, getting persecuted and led to the cross. Okay, they're going to have to pray for strength. They're going to have to pray for courage to, to proclaim the gospel and all that Jesus taught them to a hostile Jewish people and pagan Gentiles. Okay, they're going to need... Salvation, to pray for salvation for the mobs of people who just put Jesus on the cross. Okay, Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2. I mean, it, it says there, uh, Peter's first sermon there after Pentecost. But look at, uh, well, if you want to listen or turn there, Acts chapter 2 real briefly. Verse 42, this well-known verse. Okay, this is after Peter preaches and thousands get saved. And the church is growing. Verse 42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Hey, they need to be praying that they and other believers would fear God, they would keep believing, they would love God above all things in life as new believers, that they would learn and grow in their faith as they're learning from the apostles. Hey, what else would they need to pray for? Verses 43 to 47 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. 
And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, so they had a lot of stuff to pray for. Okay? Seemingly impossible things that are humanly impossible. Okay? That all these people would, would, would repent, would believe. That they would be able to do miraculous works in Jesus' name. Okay? They probably had to pray for, to, to fight any pride that, that would come with that. They would, they would have to pray that God would be glorified through, through all these works. They'd pray for their own obedience and the new believers' obedience to Jesus' command to love each other and to take care of each other as was described there. All of those things and more. So, the great missionary of China in the 1850s to 1905, Hudson Taylor, he said, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. Okay, this is faith, trust, confidence in God. Okay, a believing heart. We as Christians today have much to go to God to in prayer, don't we? It may seem impossible as some of us think about our family members or friends that they would ever be saved. They've rejected the gospel for so many years. They've been hostile to you at your many attempts to share Christ with them. They're living like the devil. Or, or maybe, maybe even worse, they're living decent, upstanding, fine, hardworking lives, being good, moral people with no need for God. It seems impossible that they would be converted to Christ. What other impossible things are on your hearts and minds this morning, Faith Bible Church. Spiritual battles, life struggles, marriage, parenting, family problems, relationship issues, finances, living situation, inflation, cost of living. Jesus says to go to God with a trusting, believing heart. And he lays out those quick guidelines here, right? He says, does not doubt in his heart. Like I said before, wavering and doubting is the opposite of trust and faith. And so I don't want to be unsure or uncertain or, or wishy-washy. As I come to God, as I pray for the lost, as I pray for our church, as, as we proclaim the truth of the gospel to the lost, I don't want to doubt. I don't want to waver in faith. He says, but rather believes They do not doubt in his heart, but rather, but believes. This is that continuing attitude of trust that the request will be granted. That's an essential element of effective prayer. It asks, listen, in harmony with the will of God and the truth of God. That's the key. That's the key to all this. Listen to John 14, verse 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask him, talking to the disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it in my name, according to my character, according to my truth, according to who I am, that the Father may be glorified in me. I will answer you. 
John 15, verse 7, next chapter, same night. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What's, what's the caveat there? You belong to him. You're abiding in him. You're staying in him. You believe in him. Your, your trust is in him. You're connected with him. You're the branch connected to the vine. My words abide in you. Whatever you wish, it will be done. I'll give you one more. 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Same writer, the Apostle John. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay? So um, that's not a legalistic verse, folks. That's just the truth. That's the reality of effective prayer. Psalm 37, verse 4, right? It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And not only the, the desires, the, the actual things, but the right desires, which are asking for the right things, which, which will be granted. And so, can I give a quick, important, by the way, this does not mean that God always answers yes, right? God is not obligated, obligated to answer or even answer yes, even to believers, his beloved children, who many times we need a no or we need a wait. Not yet, not now. God knows what's best for our hearts and, and souls, does he not? He has his sovereign purposes and, per, and perfect will all figured out. So Jesus is calling us to trust in God who has the power to respond to our every need, but he also has the wisdom to know when our requests should be denied. We pray to God, but we don't presume upon God. So maybe these verses are a little bit challenging to us, but I hope they're encouraging as well because they're they're just here to to partly to, to make sure our prayers don't go unanswered because we're just not praying, okay? As I told you about myself, right? Like, they're not being answered because I never uttered them. I, I do not have because I do not ask. Or because we gave up, right? We could go to Luke 18, but we don't have time, right? But that parable about the, the woman who goes to the unrighteous judge, and she keeps going, 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 and, and uh, even the unrighteous judge says, oh, okay, okay, yes. And how much more our loving, righteous, heavenly Father will give us as we persist in prayer according to his will. And so I don't want to pray with doubting words uttered. For I want to pray with a trusting, believing heart. So true faith in the one true God, a trusting, believing heart, the last essential element of effective prayer is a truly forgiving heart attitude. A truly forgiving heart attitude. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And so we're not going to, you know, this, this uh, just forgiveness is a whole like series of, of sermons. But when it's addressed here in Mark 11:25 in these precious words to the twelve, as Jesus is teaching them, and encouraging them and fortifying them in their faith and encouraging them to pray in a certain way. He's talking about a heart attitude here. This is in the context of prayer. 
A truly forgiving heart attitude is essential for effective prayer. If we're not right with people, it's very hard to be right with God. Has anyone noticed that? Hey, I'm just, um, you know, the, the, the verse comes to mind, First Peter 3, verse 7. I don't want to mess it up here. But it says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Right? So, dear husbands, I don't know if you've ever just been in an argument with your wife. I know that hardly ever happens with most of us here. But um, when that does happen, uh, and, and we are unforgiving towards our wife, and we're not showing her honor um, as a fellow heir of the grace of life that God has given to us, um, our, our prayers are hindered. He says, show her honor so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, that's just one example of when we're not right with other people. Our, our, our prayers are, there's an obstacle, right? We're actually sinning against another person if we're not forgiving them, or if we're refusing to forgive them. And we're sinning against God because he tells us to, to forgive others just as the Lord forgave you. So think about that. Maybe our prayers are, are hindered or our prayer life is a little ineffective these days. Because we're not really right with people. There's someone, he says, who has anything against anyone. And so, without going into another rabbit trail, let me just say this. Okay, we should pair these verses with uh, what else Jesus says about forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 21, 22. This is just a quick reminder. Okay, and then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter's like, man, that's, that's so many times. You know, I got this one. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And Jesus is not asking Peter to do the quick math and say, well, 490, right? No, it's, it's an innumerable amount of times. As long as someone says, comes to you and they, they, they ask for forgiveness, you are to forgive them. Listen, Luke 17, verse 3 and 4 is the other verse, okay? Jesus says, be on your guard. That means take heed to yourselves. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And you shall forgive. So that, that question always comes up, right? Like if someone some sinned against you and offended you, and it was, it was definitely sin, and, and uh, they, don't, they don't ask for forgiveness. They never apologize and come to you and, and, and seek forgiveness. Like, can you forgive them? Well, this is the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of Jesus and the wisdom of God. You know, the, Mark 11 says we need to have a heart attitude of forgiveness towards people, okay, those who have sinned against us. Whether they come and apologize and, sin again, and, and uh, repent and ask your forgiveness or not. Okay, but the other thing is... That, in order for like the transaction to happen and for the you know the, the completeness of the reconciliation to happen and the complete restoration of that relationship, yeah, they need to come just like if you sinned against someone. You need to go and, and apologize, say what you did, 
that was wrong before God and before the person and, and, and ask for forgiveness. And if that person is a Christian, they are, they are commanded to forgive you. And so it's, it's, all, it's all covered. Okay? It's all covered. And so um, verse 26 Verse 26 says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Some of you, if you have the NASB or other translations, have that verse in brackets, which means it wasn't in the early manuscripts. That, that part of the verse was not there. But it's in Matthew 6, okay, just to comfort you a little bit. Matthew 6, verse 15 does say the, almost the exact same thing. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And I just want to briefly comment that that does not mean that believers will lose their salvation. It's like the, the forgiveness that you receive, that salvation, will all of a sudden be taken away, taken back by God. Ah, I don't forgive you anymore. Jesus' blood wasn't enough. No, that's not what it means, okay? Um, when you remember John 13, the upper room, okay, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and teaching them in that upper room discourse, right? He's talking about the bath and the washing of feet, right? He's washing Peter's feet. So the bath is salvation. It's complete cleansing and forgiveness of our sins. We're washed by Christ's blood. Right? But then he says, the foot washing. Okay, this is the need for daily cleansing from stains from, from the world and forgiveness for sins of the day. Okay? That's why 1 John 1, 1.9 is there. Even as believers, we continue to sin. Right? And we need to, be, we need to have our feet washed to that. Okay? If anyone confesses their sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God will chasten his children who refuse to forgive others. Okay, bringing it back to the point here. Okay, there's a, a break in fellowship. There's a breach in your relationship with your Heavenly Father when you refuse to forgive others. So this, this highlights the incredible importance of truly forgiving others. Okay, like real forgiveness, guys. Not just someone apologizes and you say, ah, okay, just because you want to get it over with or just because you don't want to be looked at as a bad person or just because you want to get the situation over with or whatever, right? You say, yes, I forgive you, and your heart's like, I hate you. Okay? I still hate you, right? That's, that's not forgiveness. Matthew 18:35. we don't have time, but that concludes the parable of the servant who received forgiveness of insurmountable debt and yet was unwilling to forgive the debt owed to him. And at the end of the parable there, Jesus says that that one will receive a chastening, a discipline from Father God. And um, it's not a condemnation ultimately, but it's this, this severe discipline from, from God. And it teaches the critical need for us to forgive those who sin against us. To truly forgive them. Okay? To truly forgive them. This is an essential element of effective prayer. Right? James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a, of a righteous one it can accomplish much. Okay? The fervent prayers of a, a righteous man. Someone who's not forgiving other people, okay? who has a grudge or bitterness in their heart, and they're holding on to it, is not a righteous person. It's not characterized by righteousness. So I always, I always um, feel the need to, to, to say this, and we're going to end the point by saying this, okay? Truly forgiving other people. Just jot this down. Okay, here's, the, here's the principle of, of forgiveness. You're promising that person that you will not bring this up to, to go against them to, to three people. 
Okay? Number one is God himself. Person, God, Jesus. Okay? Three beings. You're promising not to bring that up in your mind. Or, I mean, bring that up to God. You're promising not to bring that up to the other person. Okay? The one who you say you've forgiven. Okay? That's, that's part of what it means to truly forgive someone. You're not going to bring it up in your mind against them. Okay? To bring it up to that person. And the third is yourself. Okay? God, the other person, and yourself. Okay? You're not going to bring it up in your own mind to because there's some satisfaction we get, right? Sometimes when we think of things that people did us wrong, and uh, ooh, they were so wrong, and ah, they had to ask for me for forgiveness and apologize, and I like that, right? So you won't bring it up in your other to, to hold it against that person, okay? So that's that. I don't know who said it, but I, I think it's true. We are never more like God than when we truly forgive others. Okay, and this will lead us to the communion table, to the Lord's table. Okay, Jesus wants us to truly trust in God and come clean to him. Okay? Forgiving others, having received forgiveness ourselves, come clean to him as we pray for our many needs in life. So those three essential elements, I hope they were helpful okay, for our, our prayers, our effective as individual Christians, as Faith Bible Church family, True belief in the one true God, a trusting, believing heart, and a truly forgiving heart attitude. Arguably, the sinner's greatest need, absolute greatest need, as sinners, before we know Christ, is to receive forgiveness from God. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus' death on the cross provided for us. Forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, future. If we've truly repented and placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal life, hey, we, we have been forgiven of it all. We're free from condemnation and we're free to live in right relationship with God for his glory.